Welcome to Tell Me Your Story, New Paradigms for a New World. We're giving you choices and knowledge of those choices to help make your dreams come true Sundays at 7 a.m. and 7 p.m., Monday mornings at 1 a.m. and Wednesdays at 9 a.m. for our special edition of Tell Me Your Story. We uh, also podcast on uh, SoundCloud, iTunes, TuneIn Radio, Spotify, Stitcher, Player FM, Blueberry, iHeartRadio, Amazon Music, and many other locations. We're on YouTube where you can watch these videos. Uh, the channels, uh, Richard Dugan, Tell Me Your Story. We hope that you will uh, avail yourselves of these podcasts and videocasts. And hopefully you'll click on notifications so that uh, as I upload the new videos and audio, uh, you will be notified when a new interview comes up. And uh, we've got lots of interviews coming your way as we head into uh, the holidays 2022. But today our program is going to focus on an interesting game that some people are not aware of. Uh, and uh, I'm not even sure uh, exactly how this particular, and I, I will just call it uh, with tongue in cheek, uh, philosophy got started. But it's called, are you ready folks? And the title of the book is called Pickleball Faith. Pickleball Faith. Stacy Lynn Harp is my guest uh, all the way from uh, Tennessee. Uh, and I want to thank you so much for joining us here on the program as we uh, get set to, uh, first of all, understand the game of pickleball and how pickleball faith is a faith. How are you doing today? Well, first of all, thank you for having me. It's an honor to be on your show. Thank you. You know what? I, I'm doing great. You know what? And those of you who are watching my video, this is a pickleball. Oh, doesn't look <laughs> anything this, like a pickle. This is a pickleball paddle. Uh, it's my kinetic pro speed pickleball paddle. Okay. So pickleball is a sport that's the fastest growing sport in America right now. That's what I have heard. Uh, why? People make fun of it all the time. <laughs> I know they do. I remember the first time I heard about it. And it was described to me, I just, I, I, I really kind of held my tongue, uh, you know. I could have said a lot of things, and I didn't, um, you know. And I have seen some videos of people playing pickleball on what appears to be a tennis court. But the playing surface is smaller than that, isn't it? Yes. But it is outdoor, although I would venture there are probably indoor courts. Is that right? Yes, I play indoor. I actually play indoor. That's the only place I play. Okay. And one time I played outdoors, I got bit by a big mosquito. Ow. Hmm. Well, that'd, that'd keep you indoors for sure. Uh, <laughs> what, uh, can, <laughs> what can you tell me uh, about uh, the history of pickleball? It seems to be fairly new. So I would think, uh, what, in the last 10 or 20 years, it's... Uh, it's come of age, so to speak. Uh, how did it start? Do you Can you give us any history on that? I can give you a brief history. The game has been around for about 65 years, give wow. or take. I think, I think since around 1965. Okay. So not quite, not 65 years. I was born in 68, so a little over <laughs> 50 years. Let's put it that way. Um, it was, I believe it was developed or discovered or created in Washington, the state of Washington. Um, and... It was, it came about as a result of these guys trying to get their kids to do something outdoors and wanting to play something. So they they kind of haphazardly created these wood, wooden paddles and then they changed the rules be, from tennis because of, uh, you know, I don't know, 
I don't know. I didn't really focus on that. Okay. <laughs> but but it is, it is a great sport. And here's the thing. Most people think that it's an old person sport. You know, old people play it like over 50 mm-hmm. or over 40, really. Um, but the reality is, is that it's exploding. And like the number one pickleball players in the world are under 30 years old. Um, in fact, Mark Cuban, just this week, it was publicized that he just bought a pickleball team. So. Oh, wow. So are we talking about professional? This is on the professional yeah. level? Yeah. Good heavens. Where have yeah. I been? Yeah. There's there's a lot of people who play it. Dr. Brene Brown, she plays it. Um, there's even a TV show called Pickled that I believe Stephen Colbert is is the host of. Yes, I've seen the uh, I've seen the promos for it. Uh, mm-hmm. I matter of fact, I saw one just yesterday. He's got a great looking jacket. Uh, looks more like a test pattern to me, but <laughs> but I did see a promo for that. So it is uh, it is coming to television. Um, the court, smaller than a tennis court, uh, mm-hmm. bigger than, obviously bigger than a ping pong table. Uh, it's kind of somewhere in the middle there. And it's, it's about the, yeah, it's about the size of a badminton court. All right. And, uh, it's fairly fast paced. It moves pretty quick. It does. If you're good. If you, if you're good. <laughs> yeah. If you're not good, it doesn't. That, and that's, that's, that's the appeal to the game. If you are a beginner, um, and you're just getting to the place where you can hit the ball. Um, it can be a very slow game. If you're more advanced, like I am, I'm not super great, but I, I can hold my my own. Mm-hmm. It can be pretty quick. Yeah. So the thing that makes it fun, though, compared to tennis is, and I'm a lifelong tennis player. So when I saw this, I was like, ooh, you know. And the whole reason I found it was because I couldn't find anywhere to go play tennis because the weather here in Tennessee it rains all the time. So I had no idea where. I could go play and this was inside. So I was like, ooh, I'm going to go check this out. And it turned out that because I am a tennis player, I picked this up very easy. Um, but the rules are different. We have a kitchen, which is outside your tennis thing. You got a kitchen and that's basically where you're supposed to keep the game. It is within the, you know, keep the ball. You're supposed to dink it. Mm-hmm. Which is like a slight little tap to keep it inside the kitchen. Ah, Okay. And that's what makes it different because tennis, you just whack the ball back and forth. You slap but it. But this is really supposed to be played at the net. It's right. really a dinking game. This is so. This takes a little. There's some skill in that. There's I mean, some it's skill not to something. It. There's a lot of skill to it. Yeah. And uh, are there a lot of rules? I don't know how many there are, but there's enough. There's enough. <laughs> <laughs> I'm curious though, the rules of pickleball and the play of pickleball. Pickleball. How does that? constitute the title of your book, Pickleball Faith? Well, see, the name of my book, Pickleball Faith, Inspiration on and Off the Court. Um, well, it's it's interesting because as I was playing the game, I, I have a background as a marriage and family therapist. And so I tend to watch people. I hear what they say on the court outside, you know, when we're playing with partners, you hear what they say to themselves or to you. There's people who like to coach you. There's people that attack themselves as they're playing. Um, There's good sportsmanship and there's bad sportsmanship. And, you know, we had a lot of people coming to play at, you know, 12 court, you know, 
three courts in our area, like 12 people, like 50 people would show up and we'd have to keep waiting to play because we only had spots for 12 people, right? Well, you develop relationships with people. And that's really what my book is about. It's about getting to know people and meeting them where they're at and allowing the Lord to do work through you. And this is the fun part. The fun part is when I started this book, it didn't turn out anyway, like I thought it was going to. It turned out to be this basically series of vignettes about what God taught me on and off the court. Hmm. Like for example, yes. have you ever played a game with somebody? Like for me, there's, there's one story in my book. There's this woman, she was in her mid seventies and she's a very slow player, but kind of a beginner. And I'm a little bit more advanced and I do play with everybody, but that particular day, I really didn't want to play with her. I was just like, you know what? <laughs> in my head, I'm mean, in my head. I would never say this to her face, <laughs> but in my head, I would, I would be like, you know what? I don't want to play with you again. Cause it's just, it's not as fun. You know, it's not as challenging for me. And as I was playing, I had this thought, why don't you ask people, What's the worst thing you've ever gotten through that you didn't think you were going to get through? So after the game, I went up, I started asking some of my other friends that question. And some of my guy friends said, you know what, going through a divorce, uh, going through a bankruptcy. Well, I get to my friend here and I ask her and she says to me, oh, that's easy. Learning to walk again twice. So I'm like going, oh. I'm feeling about, you know, two inches so tall inside my head because here I am complaining in my head. Here I'm playing with this old person that, you know, that they're not as good as me and stuff. But I didn't know her backstory. And so I asked her, I said, so what happened? You know, I mean, you're clearly walking now. And she said, well, when I was a little kid, I got run over by a car. Oh, Yeah. And then when she got older, and, and I don't know how much older, but she was riding a horse, fell off a horse, and ended up having to rewalk, had to learn to walk again. So that changed my perspective of her when I was playing against her. It changed my attitude. God changed my attitude because I was like, oh my gosh, instead of now I'm playing with this person who's annoying me and who's a big nuisance, now I'm looking at her as a miracle. And as like, wow, this is a walking miracle. Somebody in her mid seventies playing this game and, you know, not knowing anything about her backstory. Uh, but then learning that one little thing changed everything for me. Mm. So we're talking with Stacy Lynn Harp. Her book is Pickleball and uh, Pickleball Fate, I should say. And uh, we're going to continue our conversation with her here on Tell Me Your Story. I'm Richard Dugan, your host, and it's really a pleasure to have Stacy Lynn Harp on a on our program here to uh, to talk about this aspect. I, I will let you know uh, it's not a secret. Uh, I worked for 15 years for a Christian radio station back in the heyday of televangelism back in the 80s and early 90s. That was a fun time. And I, I, I didn't hear a whole lot about faith, more about raising money. But what I'm noticing today, Stacy, and I don't follow the televangelists anymore. I, when I left, we parted ways and I've done my own thing, as it were. But what I have noticed is that with the struggles and the challenges that we have today, uh, I could sit here and maybe go down to a list, but I won't because we all know what they are uh, for each one of us individually and collectively. 
it is sometimes, uh, it's hard to, as they say, keep the faith, uh, to, to hang on, uh, you know, and I know that uh, for that matter, I know that suicide rates, they're climbing because mm-hmm. people are just, they're exhausted. They don't see any hope. How does, how do the stories in your book uh, that you share help people to understand that you don't want to give up hope? You don't want to, you don't need to, you don't have to give it up. You just have to hang on as that wonderful poster with the cat (laughs) hanging from the cloth. Uh, you know, hang in there, baby. Uh, talk to us a little bit about that aspect of uh, the book's inspiration. Well, that's, that's a good question. Well, the book starts out with me talking about my move here to Tennessee after living in California my whole life. Um, and the reason why that's significant is because if you've ever moved from one state to another, especially as an adult, and I have no children, I have a husband. I have a couple of animals, but I don't have children. So being a middle-aged woman with no kids puts me in a category all its own that the church tends to, you know, kind of sometimes overlook that category, just like single people are often overlooked, right? Um, You know, and so for me, finding people to play with, because I I like to play, I like to play games. I like to have fun. And so I didn't, I didn't want my community to be within the church, frankly, because I, I get sick of church, churchianity. I get sick of it. Mm -hmm. You know, I posted my own show, Bible news radio for 17 years uh, online. And I've interviewed over 1500 people myself. So I, I know what it's like to be in that culture and not make any money because I don't make any money doing what I'm doing. So I understand the frustration with that. But the the reason people tune into my show is because they're dis, they're disenchanted with what's gone in to the church and in regular so-called Christian media. So I wanted to find a community outside the church and Pickleball became that community for me. And the interesting thing about it is in the community of people that I met, most of them are retired way back seven years ago when I started writing this book. Um, now you see children and teens and 20 somethings, you know, playing with their families and stuff. But back then it was only me, two or three women, um, and mostly other men, you know, that I was dealing with. And I, I learned a lot from the retired guys. A lot of them are entrepreneurs, retired entrepreneurs. Um, one of my friends is a retired FBI agent, um, you know, and and other things. So um, the hope comes from being in that community. I dedicate my book to my friend Joe, um, who who died. He actually died. We were we were joking about him dying on the pickleball court, actually, and. <laughs> He didn't. He actually didn't. But it was very close Mm -hmm. uh, that he died. And, you know, what was interesting was when he died, the community had to come together, you know, and it was it was extremely interesting to me as somebody who um, watches people 
And having had the the opportunity, I had created a T-shirt for the for the community I live in, Spring Hill Pickleball, and had sold all these. And I was going to give one to Joe, and he he died beforehand. So one of my friends suggested that we go ahead and we take one of those those shirts and have everybody sign it and give it to his wife at his memorial service. Well, we did that. And one of the couples that came to his memorial service drove all the way back from Florida, back up here to Spring Hill to attend that. I don't know many people that would do that outside my pickleball community, you know? Mm. So there's, there's always somebody there that you can turn that you can turn into and our community kind of, developed into this thing where every Christmas we would do something at one of our rich folks guys houses, the millionaire in the group lawyer, <laughs> he'd say, come on over and we'll have this big pickleball thing. And, and, you know, just different stuff like that. So it's just that sense of knowing you have a community. And yet in that community, there are still people who are jerks, which yeah. is really what, <laughs> which is really frankly inspired my book really was the jerks in the group. Because I was trying to get the jerks to understand that this isn't all about you. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and I'm happy to say that they've read my book and they love me, Matt. They, they, they're a lot nicer to me than they used to be. <laughs> so Is that, it seems to be a real issue, especially in this country today, that people, a lot of people think that it's all about them. It's all about their agenda, all about their perspective, all about their story, which there's nothing wrong with sharing one's story, but your story doesn't exist without a whole bunch of other people. Right. I, I, I made a phone call just the other day prior to this conversation to my father. Uh, he's 91. And uh, I know he's probably getting close to the end of his life here on Earth. And he shared with me, I was out there last uh, April for my, my eldest sister's memorial. And uh, I was talking with my dad and we were just chatting back and forth about, and I was, it was kind of a conversation about the influences that he and, and my mom had on us kids, you know, how they've raised us and, and, and the, 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 the values that we have and so forth and so on. And, of course, my dad is always saying how proud he is of us, each one of us as individuals. And, um, and yet he says, well, you know, I, I didn't do that much. Your mother's the one that really did the work because, you know, he looks at it as he was working nine to five um, and, and just trying to bring in the money for the kid, you know, for the family and everything. As, as, at that time, it was uh, a, single, a single payer, if you will, or uh, what have you, household. Single job household. And I called him up and I said uh, just recently, um, I said, uh, first of all, uh, hey, it's good to hear your voice. Glad you're doing well. And I just wanted to let you know that you told me this thing about how you didn't feel like you had an influence. And I want you to know that I would be half the man I am if it weren't for you. You were there. And he thanked me, told me he loved me. And I told him I loved him. And and, uh, and so forth, and then we conversed about other things. And my father certainly is not a narcissist, by any means. Yeah. Does not think that it's all about him. 
But in the case of raising six kids, seriously, six kids, um, wow. he and my mother, I don't want to take anything away from my mother, but I, I want to make sure my father understands, did a great job. You know, he got, he raised us all, got us all out of the house. <laughs> you know, we all moved out of the house and then they had the house to themselves and they have grandchildren and great grandchildren now. Uh, so it's a beautiful thing. But do you think that there are people out there that we already know there are people out there who think it's all about them. But what about those people who don't think they're making a difference at all, that their lives really don't amount to much of anything? They haven't made, you know, they haven't done a whole lot to change the world when, in fact, they've probably done more than they realize. You know, this morning I was reading in the Gospel of Mark, and it was near the end of the book where Jesus was watching. He was observing the Pharisees and the people putting money into the treasury, mm -hmm. right, into the, to the synagogue. And he observed the widow put in two little mites, right? Now, to the outward world... She didn't give anything. But to the to Jesus, when he was looking at what was going on, he totally looked at her heart. And actually, he pointed out to his disciples, do you see what she just gave? She gave this. She gave more than these guys did because she gave out of her need instead of her abundance. And I think that if we can see ourselves as that person, Often, I think people, most people, I think, give out of our need because most people don't know how to ask for what they need, mm. you know, and, and it's kind of like, um, and, and the other story too, and this is, this is the, the other story too, was, you know, when Jesus was anointed right before his burial, you know, you got Judas and some of the disciples go, yeah, don't you think that, you know, she could have sold that and given 300 denarii to, you know, the poor, blah, blah. And Yeshua, Jesus says, hey, you know, you're always going to have the poor with you. But what she did for me will be done whenever the gospel is preached in remembrance of her. Hmm. And here I am telling you this story, right? Hmm. A long time ago, when I heard that, I was like, you know, I wonder if there was one act in my life that that same statement would apply to, what would it be? What would be that one act that the Lord would say, to, you know, to me, whatever you do for me, it's going to be remembered wherever the gospel is preached in remembrance of you. He said in remembrance of her, you know, in that culture, women were not lifted up by the normal folk, you know, they were degraded in the Jewish culture. But when Jesus come, comes by, he elevates that woman, right? So I wouldn't have known she anointed Christ if it wasn't for the fact that God didn't record it for us, right? Mm -hmm. So that kind of brings me back to, you know, I remember years ago, I was, I was in a worship service and I was, um, I lifted my hands, I was in the front row and afterwards, this woman comes up to me and she's like, I need to talk to you. And I'm like, all right, yeah, I'm going to get in trouble. I've done something wrong. I don't know what it is because it seems to follow me wherever I go, even though I'm not doing anything. You know, all that went through my head. And um, 
I said, yes. And she says, I just want to let you know that my little girl was mimicking you. Everything you did, she did. I was like, oh. <laughs> what that told me was there's always somebody watching you. Mm -hmm. Right. And we know from Psalm 139 that the Lord watches us. Right. He knows us. He knows when we get up, when we get down, he scrutinizes our path, our lying down. You ever thought about that? The Lord scrutinizes you. He scrutinizes everything that you do because he He loves you that much. Mm -hmm. Right. And and honestly, that should be enough. Um, but I think it's not for most people, especially in the body, because we we have been so told to look over here instead of look to the Lord for everything. And Christian media, frankly, is a big part of the problem. Mm. <laughs> and I say that as somebody who has been in Christian media yeah. for, for a while, you know. Well, I I have to I would have to agree with you uh, because it does tend to get off track. Mm -hmm. um, I would have to say too that uh, the impetus for my phone call to my father was because of a movie we saw on uh, on demand about uh, the the song a songwriter a young man who was uh, 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 Dennis Quaid by the way was in this particular film and uh, so was. Uh, and I'm not going to say it was Amy Grant, but uh, an actress who played her. And he had written this song called um, I Can Only Imagine, mm -hmm. which his father had written into his journals after his father had read them. Hmm. And yet his father verbally would tell him to give up his dreams, stop imagining, get in the real world, all this kind of stuff. And yet behind the scenes... His father could see how he was growing up and how he was, how he was, and so he wrote those in there. And so, as as the son, as an adult now, on a tour bus, as a songwriter, started going through his journals, and he started seeing this on the side margins, all over the place in his journals. He couldn't believe it, which is what inspired him to write the song "I Can Only Imagine." And it, it helped him to reconcile with his father to have some quality moments with him before his passing. He was dying of cancer. Um, and uh, it was really quite, and that was really what touched me in terms of calling my father. Now, we've never been estranged. We've always been able to talk, all of those kinds of things, almost like the sort of Norman Rockwell-ish kind of situation, okay? I mean, I'm not saying it was perfect, but, you know, I don't know how it could have been better, quite honestly. And, uh, and that's why I made the phone call. And uh, I, I just, I was really touched by that movie. It was just, it was really quite spectacular uh, in, the, in the way that they put it together. You know, in the way that, that they created, especially that, lat, that scene on stage where she, Amy is about to sing the song. Because he wants her to sing it. And she, they, they play the introduction two, three, four times. And she says, you need to come up here. This is your song. This is your story, not mine. Uh, yes, I was touched by it, but it's not my story. You need to sing this. And, and it was really quite moving. Um, I wish I could remember the name of the movie. <laughs> I think it was I Can Only Imagine. There you go. That's probably what it is. I Can I Only Imagine. I think it was because I've seen the movie and I remember that scene. Yeah. At the very end. Yeah. What I think that the scene that really struck me, and I know we're going off on a little bit of a tangent here, but the scene that struck me was the argument they had 
right before the son found the pamphlet in the visor of the dad's truck telling the son that his father had pancreatic cancer. And I'm going, you were just mad as heck at your father. And now all of a sudden, just because now you find out he has cancer, your heart has softened. I just, there was a part of me that's going, something's not right here, you know. I think it was great, okay, that that happened. But I just thought how interesting how, oh, now they're in trouble. I, I, I need to be there for them. I hated them 10 minutes ago. I didn't want to be around them. I wish they would just go away. Now I've got to be with them until the end. And that's an interesting transformation. Do you, do you find that that happens of more and more these days with people once they start listening to somebody else's story? I think we find ourselves in other people's stories. That's actually what I've noticed with my book, because I, you know, I talked to my therapist at length <laughs> before I released this book, because I was concerned, because to me, it's a very intimate book. Yeah. You know, I was concerned what people were going to think, um, because I write about a lot of different things. I, 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 I quoted my first internship, um, my, my first, uh, oh, geez, seriously, um, when I was in an internship to be a therapist, mm -hmm. my first supervisor, there you go. So my first supervisor, I, I quoted him. He said at the end of every therapy session, just he said, it's not why people go in to see you as a therapist. It's 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 the relationship that they have with you. That's the cure. Mm -hmm. And there's a whole chapter in my book called that. The relationship is the cure. And what I found from people who've read my book is that they come back and they'll say, oh, I related to this, 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 and this. I talk about the death of my friend. I talk about working, you know, dealing with my father who had dementia and Parkinson's. And I didn't know him growing up. And I took him in and took care of him until he died last year. Um, you know, I talk about an encounter with an angel I saw in a locker room after I baptized one of my listeners into Christ. Mm. Um you know, I, I talk about the arguing and the beginner's perspective, the advanced player's perspective. Like this, Richard, have you ever wondered why somebody old would go and try to learn something new? On the one hand, it seems a little peculiar considering they don't have, usually they don't have much time left on the earth, but... I mean, I think about that with my parents, my father, 91, my mother, 88. And I'm going, I, I want to ask them this question. I haven't. Why do you get up in the morning? You know, mm -hmm. what is it that you look forward to each day? You know, kind of thing. Share yeah. with us. Share with us what you've found. Well, well, yeah, what I found is that, you know, like people, you know, there's been a lot of people that have showed up on the pickleball court that I would be like, why are you here? <laughs> you know, like, why are you here? You can't even stand without wobbling so much. And and I've literally seen these older people fall and hit their head and crack it open. Um, but but then there's there's other people too. Like there's young younger kids. Like my friend Jr. I write about him, and I write about one day Jr. Um, who is about seventy. I think he's seventy now. Um, and but he taught special ed right? Um, 
in, in school. So he taught special ed. And one day I wanted to go out to lunch with some friends and Jr had decided that he wanted to play with this kid because, and it was a nice little homeschooled kid. He was about 10, 15, 10, 11 years old. And JR had him as a partner. And then there was me and some other person. And JR is a very good player, right? So I don't mind playing him. But this day, it was just this day, he was driving me up a wall. And I'm like, you know what? Two two minutes between serves is not cool for me. And, <laughs> and, and I'm like, you know what? Stop instructing this kid. Just play the stinking game and then we'll be able to get out of here. Um, and I and I write about how in I write in my book how I was so frustrated. I actually threw the game. I literally quote threw the game. I, I stopped basically playing the game. I threw the game. I literally walked off the court. In fact, my therapist told me when she read that part in my book, she's like, I love that part in your book. <laughs> I'm like, why? And she said, because you're you're being real about, you know, basically you wanted something your way and you acted like a brat and you just didn't get your way. Here, JR is trying to help this kid learn something new. Just like when I try to teach a new player, I'm trying to teach them. But that day I was being selfish and all that. And then I had another time, and this is this is a, a kind of a funny story too, was there was a, a woman who came up to me and she's like, hey, I have a cupboard pie and I'm selling this so we can go buy paddles for the Philippines. Can you, Would you like to buy one? And I'm like, nope, I am not going to buy one. I don't really know what's in cupboard pie, but whatever. And she's, oh, it's for a good cause. Can't you even give a dollar? And I'm like, nope. I ain't given a dollar. And in my mind, I'm thinking, don't you know that I have full-time ministry? I barely make anything. Are you supporting me? No. <laughs> and I've just had all this stuff going on in my head. And so I, and so she's like, oh, and she, you know, she walks off the court and she's sad and everything. And I'm like, oh, I'm feeling really sad. So I go and I get on to the next game and I'm playing the game. And as I'm playing the game, the Lord, the Holy Spirit saying, you know that 20 bucks you have in your car that you save for lunch so you can go outward with some of these guys afterwards? I'm like, yeah. He's like, you need to give it to her. And I'm like, oh, I don't <laughs> want to give it to her. You know, and I'm I'm playing this game and I'm arguing back and forth, back and forth with God. And I'm like, fine. So the game's over. I go, I walk outside. And as I'm walking outside the rec center to my car, it was about a 10 minute walk. His sweet voice says to me, you know, those greenies that Alex has been bringing you for the last two years because he works at Mars, this pet company that makes greenies, little treats for dogs, which cost a fortune. I said, yep. He's he's like, how much do you think those have cost? Those would have cost you if you would have got them for free. I'm like, if, if you would have had to pay for them rather. And I said, well, probably a lot, you know, like hundreds of dollars. Mm -hmm. <laughs> And, and, um, I was like, okay, look, I see your point. So I continue to get to my car. I take the $20 out of my purse or where, wherever it was. And then I slowly walk back into the gym and I, I interrupt the game that this person is playing. And I said, look, I have to give you this 20 bucks because the Lord just corrected me. And I want to let you know, I'm sorry about my attitude here. Please donate this to the Philippines for me. 
she didn't know what to do. She was like, what the heck just happened? It was like all the jaws dropped mm -hmm. in the room because they were like, what, what the heck? You just said no 10, 15 minutes ago. And now here you are being contrite and, and given 20 bucks instead of one buck, which is all we ask. Yeah. It, it's those types of things that you, you just walk your faith out. Right. Um, and most people are too, they're not connected that way, you know? And so my book is, is about that. It's about the relationship. My friend, Frank, one afternoon, I was at the, at the, um, I actually was running late, you know, cause the regulars, you show up at a certain time. And this one day, Frank came up to me. I had, I'd been late. He comes up to me and he says, here, here, um, Pedro, I have something for you. He called, oh, Poncho. He calls me Poncho. Mm. Why do I look like a poncho? Not really, but no. Anyway, but anyway. No, poncho. <laughs> so he says, Poncho, I have something for you. And I'm like, you do? And he's like, yeah. And I'm like, okay. And he hands me this little box and a card. And I opened the box and inside was a cupcake. And mm. it was a birthday cupcake because my birthday was, it was actually, I think it was my actual birthday. And it made me cry because my dad couldn't do that for me, right? And Frank is 75 or something and the father of a, a daughter about my age, you know, and it was a year prior to that, he came to Pickleball and I found out his birthday, he had a birthday and it was his birthday. And I said, you know, I just learned it's your birthday. So here's $1.25. Go to the vending machine to buy yourself a candy bar on me. Happy birthday. <laughs> he remembered that. And it touched him so much that a, the, a year later, he gives me this cupcake on my birthday. Our birthdays are like three or four days apart. But I never mentioned my birthday to him. But Frank remembered that. Mm -hmm. You know? And I write in my book about how he knew that me being a caregiver to my dad, um, that my dad couldn't do anything like that. Mm. Mm. So it was, again, it goes back to the relationship being the cure. You know, we're in this community of pickleball people that you get to know one another off and on. Because my dad was a Korean War vet, probably like, I don't know if your dad was Korean or, or World War II or, no. or anything, but my dad was a Korean War vet. I had him come down and watch me play one time and everybody just came over and thank you for your service, sir. And, you know, and they just loved seeing my dad, you know, so. Yeah, my dad uh, was in service to the seven of us, uh, the six okay. kids and my mother. That makes sense. <laughs> which which, uh, which uh, could have could have been the combat pay of a sort. <laughs> we were quite a crew, but at the same time, there was a lot of love in the family. I, I'd like to ask you a, a few more questions about your father, if, if, we, can, if we can go down that road. Sure. All right. We'll do that as we continue talking with Stacy Lynn Harp, author of Pickleball Faith. Uh, very excited to have you here on the program. Tell me your story. I'm Richard Dugan, your host, and uh, we're talking with Stacy Lynn Harp and uh, the work that she has put out. Uh, that is uh, the book entitled Pickleball Faith Inspiration uh, on and off the court. And we hope you're enjoying this conversation. Um, 
maybe the reason why we're doing this program uh, at this time, uh, talking about fathers, I don't know. I, I, there's a part of me that doesn't want to think about it, and yet at the same time, I know the day is coming when I thought when I got the call back in March uh, 2022 that they, my uh, youngest sister was calling to tell me that my dad had passed when in mm -hmm. fact it was my eldest sister but I know I'm going to get that call right. one day I'm hoping it's with the longevity in our family of a hundred years plus could be another nine years away but I know it's coming <clears throat> and I'm not going to say my dad and I were real close but we did have a connection. We played chess a lot when I was a kid growing up. He taught me how to play chess. Um, matter of fact, I started, uh, uh, I started writing a song about him. And, um, uh, uh, and, and I've, I've got the chorus line, uh, you know, so it's like, okay, I've got that part. That's good. I can repeat that. But <laughs> and the chorus line is basically, oh, daddy. You know that I love you. Oh, Daddy, I know that you care. Oh, Daddy, uh, I wouldn't be half the man I am. Oh, Daddy, if you weren't there. Which is what I shared with him over the phone the other day. Aww. That came from that movie. Mm -hmm. All right? I can only imagine. My parents never, ever said to us, yeah, no. You can't do that. You can't do this. Here's the reason why. Um, they were always supportive. They always, it was, it was the outside world <laughs> that told us we couldn't in some cases. What about your relationship with your father? And, and obviously you were a caregiver to him for what, the last couple of years, three years before his passing? About seven years. How, how was your relationship with him prior to that when he was fully cognizant of who he was, who you are, your relationship, all of that? Well, you know, that's an interesting question. Um, my mom and dad got divorced when I was seven. And my mother left my father for my uncle, for her uncle, actually. Where have I heard this story before? <laughs> Let's just say that it was the worst decision my mother ever made. Um, she was a classic sociopath, narcissist. And through this situation, long story short, my mom moved us from New York to California. Um, and so she badmouthed my father most of my life to me. I actually really had no relationship with my dad after that until his third wife died. And I went back and visited him for three weeks and learned how to play golf with him. And then after she died, he after she died, then two years later, he got married to his fourth wife, um, who basically did whatever she could to keep a distance from me and him. So it wasn't until after his fourth wife died. Oh, my goodness. By the way, he actually outlived all four wives. He divorced his first two, which my, my mom was number two, and the last two died. Um so it wasn't until after his fourth wife died when he was about 85 that I actually got to know him. Mm. And my husband and I drove up to Florida. We asked him if we could bring him back here because his little Baptist church, which was also really old, couldn't pretty much take care of him. We found him, you know, with wet diapers and, mm. you know, and all that. And we just brought him back and we went through, you know, I, I 
the Lord provided miraculously what I needed, VA benefits, a whole bunch of other stuff. Um, but it was the best thing that could have ever happened to me in so many ways, because I got to talk to him about him not being there. We cashed that out. And then um, from there, I just took care of him. Mm. You know, he was a lot like me. You know, there's another uh, a movie um, that has a similar a scenario in that the, the, the son uh, um, reconciles with his father. The movie is with Stephen Carell, and it's called Looking for a Friend for the End of the World. Fascinating film. But what happens is he realizes, yeah, the end of the world is coming. There's an asteroid that is is headed for the Earth, and there's nothing that anybody can do. So... Yeah, he searches out. Uh, there, there's this gal who he connects with, and 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 they go through and travel and so forth. And he wants to get back to where his father was in, at his childhood home. He gets home to where his father is, and his father wants, "Oh, you're here to rehash and make me the blame." And he basically says, "No, Dad, I don't even want to go there. Okay, we're uh-huh. here now." We get to spend this time together, you and I and, and whoever else was with them. This is what's important right now. The past, guess what? It's the past. Right. And um, talk to me a little bit about um, the, the, the concept. And it's not even a concept, I understand, but I'm just the, the words I'm coming up with. The concept of forgiveness and forgetting. They say, I can forgive, but I can never forget. And, and I'm just thinking, there's got to be a way. Because if you, if you continue to remember, have you really forgiven that person? I'm not saying that you haven't been traumatized. I'm not saying that you haven't been affected. But you kind of see what I'm saying there? You see where I'm going with that? Oh, yeah, yeah. Well, you know, it's interesting. I'm a therapist, right? So I'm, um, <clears throat> And what I can tell you is that Forgiveness is really tricky when it comes to whatever type of relationship it is. So like, for example, if you're in a normal, healthy relationship, if you do something to tick me off and I come to you and say, Richard, you know, you, you did this to me and, you know, you were late. How dare you be late? You, you, don't you know that's a, a button that you should never be late? Let me know if you're going to be late, you know, and you say, Stacey Lynn, hey, you know, what? I'm really sorry. And then, you know, will you please forgive me? And I'm like, OK, I'll forgive you. Right. And then you don't do it again. That's normal forgiveness, right? But if you are in a relationship with a toxic person, a narcissist, somebody who is always blame shifting and different things like that, it if do you know anything about domestic violence and the cycle of abuse with domestic violence? So if you you understand that domestic violence cycle, you got your love bombing, you're devaluing, you're ignoring, um, and you know, oh, I'm so sorry. And then the victim offers forgiveness, but then the perpetrator will go back and go through the whole thing again. There's mm-hmm. never any really true repentance. Yeah. It's different. I, you know, what I tell people is, look, um, forgiving doesn't mean trust. It doesn't mean trusting and it doesn't mean forgetting. I mean, we're not God. God can forget. You know, he does as far as East is from the West, right? right? He, he forgets, our, he does that. 
that's wonderful. And in our relationship with God, he he actually requires repentance, you know. In these toxic relationships, though, some of these people, you know, would they they go, oh, yeah, you're going to forgive. So guess what? I can do this again. This is like my free ticket to do it over and over again. So there has to be some personal accountability in a relationship if I think if real forgiveness is going to happen. You know, with my, and I will tell you really fast with my father, we had that perfect, healthy relationship with my mother who died 20 years ago. And, um, it was the best thing that ever happened to me, which sounds horrible, but if you knew my mother Mm -hmm. and all the stuff she put me through, she never once asked me for forgiveness for handing me over to be molested most of my childhood, but I did forgive her on her deathbed or about a year before she died with cancer. And I served it. I served her. And, and she did come to the Lord right before she died, but she never asked me for forgiveness. But I still forgave her mm-hmm. because the Lord forgave me. Yeah. You know, but it was a divine thing. Yeah. I couldn't have done that on my own. Believe yeah. me. Yeah, I find it interesting, too, uh, Stacy, that uh, it talks that Jesus says you're to forgive 70 times seven. That's 490 times. Your Ooh. brother. He says you for he says you're supposed to forgive your brother. That's right. You forgive. If they ask you well, for forgiveness, there's criteria there. I understand. You know, it's not just blatant forgiveness. They have to ask and come back. Right. And most of the time, people don't do that. But the mathematical equation is rather interesting because uh, oh sure, who keeps track? Who really keeps right. track? Okay, I'm at three hundred seven. <laughs> I'm um, 308, right. 309. You know? Right. Um, I think that the point is not the mathematics. Right. It's that's what we're supposed to do. Uh, but what about self-forgiveness? I don't think we were designed to forgive ourselves. And that's one of the biggest things that annoys me right now. <laughs> that is that there's nowhere in scripture that says we're supposed to forgive ourselves. That's psychobabble 101. And and what really drives me crazy is that the Bible says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness, right? So I think that the whole idea of, quote, forgiving ourselves is, is, I'm trying not to swear, is stupid. I'll just say it that way. (laughs) And, um, and, And it really, because... Because that makes it all about us. You talk about narcissism. Yeah. I mean, it's like all about us. That doesn't focus our eyes back on the on the one who, you know, who forgive us. And, you know, one of the things I learned in my recovery through many years of therapy was that, you know what? I needed to stop taking blame and blaming myself for the sinful actions of others towards me. It wasn't my responsibility to take the blame for what they did to me. You know, it's my responsibility to accept the gift that Jesus gave me though. You know, if I say, you know what, (laughs) I don't care that you've forgiven me on the cross, then, you know, I'm, then I'm going to hell basically. Mm. Um, So I, yeah, you ask a lot of deep questions, man. (laughs) (laughs) I have been accused of that over and over again. Uh, matter of fact, I will just share with you uh, experiences that I had at the religious station where I was asking the same kinds of questions because the answers that I was getting 
from some of the people that uh, that were on the air there and some of the, like we had would have prayer call-in programs, we would have Bible study call-in programs, and the phone answering people, I would converse with them because obviously the hosts were on the air. And um, the answers I was getting just didn't make any sense to me. I didn't care whether they quoted what, I didn't care what they quoted, it didn't make sense to me. And so I continued to ask, and then they said, well, why don't you just read the writings of the founding fathers of the faith? And I thought, well, wait a minute, who set them up as the arbiters of the faith, number one? Number two, I don't know who the heck these people are. I'm, these questions are coming up in my head, so that must put me, that must elevate me to that level of these quote-unquote founding fathers, because I'm asking these questions. And I am more than willing to wear a great big H on my forehead as a heretic in asking these questions. Because if they don't make sense at one level, uh, it, it, it just, uh, you know, I, I, I just have a hard time with that. It just, it's, it's, uh, that's just me, you know, and I'm curious. And I'm not saying that I have landed on all of the answers. God forbid. Uh, I, I, as a matter of fact, uh, what is the... Uh, the more answers, uh, the more answers you get, the more questions you have. Well, that's me. The more answers that I get, the more questions I have. Now, someone even said to me, and this was when I was 21, mind you. Number one, they said, Richard, you are wise beyond your years. I wasn't sure what that meant. And I'm just hoping now that the age of 62 that I've sort of kept up that, you know, maybe I'm still wise beyond my years. I don't know. Uh, <laughs> when you look at it, you got a gray beard. Uh, well, thank you so much. Uh, it's the professorial look um, for this time of the year. And then the other thing, too, was um, that uh, I was told it is better to begin in doubt and end in certainty than to begin in certainty and end in doubt. Mm -hmm. And I will be honest with you, <clears throat> Stacy. If I were to be truly honest, if I were to take on a label, okay, it would be an agnostic or agnostic Christian because I don't know. And I don't care what you, where you point me in the ancient wisdom teachings, whether you want to call it the Bible or otherwise, it still doesn't tell me that I still don't know. I have to know in here. I have to know in here. Not in here, of course, because this is not really relevant. If I don't know in here, I don't know. And so when people ask, I've, I get questions. I'm curious. Do you, you must get these kinds of questions like, what, 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 what's after death? What happens? Now, I tell people, my own mind tells me that my life has meaning. Uh, it doesn't make any sense with everything that's going on in the world and all the things that I've done and the path I've been on that my life doesn't have meaning. So my life has meaning. Your life has meaning, right? Because if it didn't, I would forget about this interview and I'd go out and rape and pillage and plunder. It wouldn't matter, right? But there's something inside that says, Richard, your life has meaning. And so when I tell them this, I say, okay, look, I don't know, but it doesn't make sense to me that at death it's, it's lights out. Now, if it is, I'm not going to know it anyway, right? I'm not going to know. It's, right. I, you know, just, but that doesn't make sense either, that it's just, it's just over. There has to be something more. Uh, so I share with them what I can. 
to try to tell them, look, this is what I believe, not what I know, what I believe. You must get these kinds of questions. Why the heck am I here? Uh, you know, why, why am I going through these things? Or why is God putting me? I'm not Job. We already did that one, you know, that kind of thing. Talk to us about your experiences in therapy, not your therapy, but as the therapist and the people that come to you to, to try to get a handle on, on themselves and understanding where they fit in this universe that we, we live in. I really haven't had those particular issues in therapy as a client, um, as a, as a therapist. Um, but I have had a lot of listeners to my show, mm -hmm. uh, you know, kind of, well, you know, the ones who like to poke you in the eye a little bit. Sure, go, sure, right, yeah. Right. So this might be a weird answer, but. <clears throat> no weird answers on this program, let me tell you. Recently, I heard somebody uh, talking about the Godhead, right? Talking about the Trinity. Mm -hmm. Father, Son, Holy Spirit. We hear this, right? Hero Israel, Lord of God, Lord of God is one, right? And they were talking about how before creation of the world, according to scripture, they they existed. This whole, this Godhead, the Lord our God is one, this three persons in one, right? Which we can't really fathom. We don't really understand it. And I think that's, I think that's on purpose that we can't understand that. But they they were talking about how there's a difference between being God is love and love is God. And when I heard that, I was like, you know, it's interesting because the Bible says that God is love. Before we were created and the world was created, God was there. And the triune God would not have had to love. They, they would There would have been nothing to love without if it was just one God right? If it was just one person. Mm -hmm. So the Trinity pointed to the fact that they loved one another. Mm -hmm. And if you look in John chapter 14, it talks about how, um, how <laughs> if you are in me and I'm in the father and the father's in me, and then, you know, we'll all be in each other. We'll all be one. Right. Now that sounds crazy when you think about, when you actually really think about what Jesus was telling his disciples mm -hmm. before he left to go to prepare a place for us. But I think it's actually kind of spectacular because when you really think about what he's saying, he has that relationship with the Father and he sent the Holy Spirit to comfort us, right? And that was all a loving relationship. Mm -hmm. You can't have love between nothing. So the very fact that there was love between the Godhead figures in the Godhead, that depicts love, that shows us what love is here. For us, between us, not only how we're created as beings, mind, body, and spirit, but also the, the reason God gives us capability to love. Love is not God, but God is love. There's a huge difference to that. So for people who are like, how do you know? Well, you know, how did you get here? <laughs> I don't know how I got here. I've been told I was there at my birth. But I don't remember it. Yeah. You know, I mean, God, 
wiped out our basically three years and below, we can't really remember much. Uh, All I remember is I design. saw a light at the end of the tunnel, and then everything got crazy. <laughs> <laughs> I don't remember a thing. I honestly don't. <laughs> but I, but I go I go back to Psalm 139, which yeah. I I love because he's because he says before before you know I, that I formed you before I saw your unformed substance. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You know. I knew before you before you were formed. Right. Yeah. And that's weird. That would be like if I said, I knew you, Pickleball, before you were formed. Yeah. <laughs> he had the idea. He conceived of me before I was born. He had the idea to create mm -hmm, me. Mm -hmm, and I mm -hmm. think that's that's hard for us. We're created beings. I think sometimes we tend to forget that we're created beings. Yeah. We didn't just come like, like oh, all of a sudden, here I am. Like, I love Jeannie. Do you know? Yeah. <laughs> here we are. Yeah. Oh, God created us because he loves us. Let me ask you a quick yeah. question in regards to love. Okay. I know in Corinthians it refers to, gives all the characteristics thereof. As far mm -hmm. as we know, they're pretty They're pretty much all there, but not all of them. Uh, but anyway, that's beside right. the point. Right. When we talk about this concept of love, are we talking about an emotion or are we talking more about an intentional action of compassion and etc 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 because i know there are people who don't know whether or not they have the capacity to love and yet they're still kind and considerate to their fellow man and woman and child uh, you know, they're they're there for people. Uh, they're, they might be caregivers, et cetera, et cetera. I mean, in other words, uh, and again, I'm not going into the, the, the aspect of salvation here. I'm just talking about the concept of love. Are we talking about an emotion? Yes. And you're also talking about action. Okay. And, and, and if you look at scripture and you look at the Greek, I think Greek has five words for love, right? Agape, yeah. right? Yeah. The erotic type of love. Us English speakers, we, we use one word yeah. to describe love different ways. I think scripture is so rich that way because it gives us, my dog just ran into something. <laughs> it, it gives us, it gives us, you know, agapeo, right? And then phileo, yeah. that brotherly love. And, you know, it gives us the eros. It gives us specific Greek words to show us what that is. And I think that bears out in different types of relationships. Yeah. And I, I know that people do struggle. Uh, I'm one of them uh, because, uh, I, I, you know, I'm, my parents have been married for 30, for 65 and a half years. When I got married the first time in 1983, I'm thinking, okay, I'm going to give them the run for their money. I'm going to, and off I went, and I made it 15. And it made me so mad that now, man, if I find someone else, I have to start all over again. When my, uh, when my eldest sister passed away, I found out they had been married for 40 years. I, I'm going, you got to be kidding me. 40 years ago, I was still living <laughs> back at home with my parents. Um, 
uh, you know, and, and, and now my sisters specifically, all of them are married and uh, they are celebrating wedding anniversaries in the like the 20s and 30s or more. And I just sit here going, oh, I mean, I'm actually about to with my second wife to celebrate 20 years. So I made it to 20. OK, that's five more than the last one. Uh, but I also made the commitment that this was going to be my last marriage. I, I was going to do everything in my power. Uh, it, and I put it in that context. I was right. going to commit to making this work. OK. And uh, so w- that's why some of us question because we think, oh, I screwed up a relationship. I messed up another person's life. I messed up my life. Do I really know what the heck love is? You know, and, uh, you know, and, and yet I think about all the things that I do for my present wife that I even did for my first wife. And I know that I loved her. I love her and I loved my first wife. Uh, I'm saddened by the fact that we had to part ways. I hate that when people do that because a lot of times they just, okay, and I don't know this person anymore. I want nothing to do with them. Whereas there are those who are good friends with their former partners, mm-hmm. you know, which would be, would be terrific, you know, if, if that were the case. When you look at your relationship in your life with your husband, and you've been, may I ask how long the two of you have been married? Yeah, we just celebrated 30 years. Wow. Congratulations. Thank you. Um, I learned. (laughs) (laughs) Now, is this your one and only, or or have you been married before? This is my only marriage. I'm 54. I got married when I was 23. I turned 24 a few months later. And I will tell you, between my husband's parents, his mom and dad, and my mom and dad, there were 12 marriages between the four of them. <laughs> wow. Oh, that's yeah. right. That's right. I did, you were telling me. That's right. Yeah. My mom was married three times. My father was married four. My father-in-law was married twice. And my mother-in-law was married three times. The difference, I you know, I figured, look, if I was going to become a marriage counselor, I better make sure my marriage is going to work, right? Yep. Yeah. Um, but I will tell you, my husband is, he's a God, godly man, and he has the patience of a saint, because he is a saint. <laughs> <laughs> but he would also tell you, I have the same thing. And I, I will tell you that, you know, we went through years of marriage counseling to to learn how to do things right, because we got handed a crappy examples of what yeah. to do. Our, our, our parents weren't believers, and some of them that said they were, you would never know it. Um you know, and, and there, there came a point, you know, in our marriage and our marriage counseling, where it was like, all right, if we ever, you know, if we, if we, the the word divorce is not going to exist in this marriage, you know what? And here's the thing, you know, and you probably have heard this before. Um, If you are in a situation where you're walking on a tightrope. It's a lot easier to walk on a tightrope when you know there's a net underneath to catch you, right? Well, that that net is Jesus for the believer, right? When all else fails, just remember you're always in his hand. Um, and if if the husband loves his bride like, like Christ loves the church and gives himself up for her and then the bride 
respects her husband and does what the Lord says by submitting unto you, you submit one to another, then your marriage is going to work. You know, it, it takes, it takes time. And th this is the thing like with marriage counseling that people don't get. And this drives me crazy. This did drive me crazy when I did marriage counseling. It drove me crazy when people would come in as a couple and they'd say, Oh yeah. I, you know, it's like, did you have any other marriage counseling? <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah, I did. I had like, how long did you go? Oh, I went for three sessions and then it was over. And I'm like, look, it took our marriage counselor about two years before she figured out a major difference with me and my husband, Randall. And one of the biggest differences was that he loved being asked questions. I hated it. <laughs> Hear me here, you know, because growing up, if I was asked a question, it was a setup. Yeah. If he was asked a question, it was because they really wanted to know. And so our communication, this is what we learned. We had to learn to flip that script in a sense so that we could learn to, you know, communicate things. And, and you know, so, yeah, we just celebrated 30 years of marriage. One of the most exciting things and biggest accomplishments of my life, praise God. Um, and I'm very proud of that mm -hmm. because I you know we worked really hard for it. And, you know, we've had our up and downs, but. You know, it's something none of my, neither of our parents ever did. So, yeah. well, I went uh, with my first wife. I actually went to our parents. We went to our parents at the time. They had been married 30 plus years. And I thought, well, shoot, they've been married 30 years. They I was born and raised Catholic. So my parents uh, were very much involved in those days of our growing up with a marriage encounter. And mm -hmm. I'm guessing That's now, as, as I look back on it, that they were involved in it because they whether they thought they had problems or not, you know, there's always room for improvement. Right. I can't remember ever seeing my parents fight. I never remember hearing loud yelling voices from the bedroom or any other room for that matter. Um, I was never aware of either of them trying to get one up on the other, like you see in a lot of TV and movies. You know, where the husband is made out to be the, the, the doofus, you know, and, well, I'll show the wife I can do this, and you know, and da-da-da-da, falls off the roof. Right. Oops. You know, or, you know, the wife doing the same kind of thing. Oh, he'll never find out. I'll go off and shop and blah, blah. And the, the account's now overdrawn. Um, and I, but I never saw any of that. They, they functioned as a team. They also had a plan. I remember I've even interviewed him on this program. Uh, several years ago, and um, many people have asked me, "Boy, you're," or they would say to me, "Your parents must have really sacrificed a lot." So I asked them that question: "Did you guys sacrifice anything?" And they said, "No, because we wanted a big family. That's what mm -hmm. we wanted." Now they didn't know that four out of the six of us were going to have visual impairments. One of them also was going to have asthma. Uh, you know, and so forth, uh, you know, and, and, and yet that wasn't a big deal for them because that's what they wanted. That's what they chose. So there was no sacrifice. Do you find that that's something that, that people struggle with? Um, they feel that it's necessary to sacrifice in order to get what they want instead of, you know, maybe if I just 
decide on what it is that I want and plan for that and prepare for it and do the, do the you know, shall we say in farming, tool, farming term, plow and prepare the soil for the seed and plant the seed and then water it and, and, and then because I want corn, except I just planted strawberry seeds. Um, what, do you, what, what do you think? Uh, f from the therapist standpoint, do you think that people are are more prone to just kind of, oh, I wish I hadn't have done that, I, you know, and now I, I'm going to lose this, and as opposed to planning. Well, okay. Well, from 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 a from a perspective as a therapist, I think that there's not enough premarital counseling that's good for people. I think most of what people get is crap. And I think that pastors are pro are part of the problem <laughs> mm -hmm. <laughs> because most pastors don't know how they don't they don't they they give this stupid marriage counseling that has nothing to do with anything. Um, I mean, I, I received that. I received crappy premarital counseling. It did nothing for me except say, "Oh, okay, now I can marry you." Because you know, whatever. yeah, you went you went through the class um, and off you go. Yeah, I I think that. You know, I think there's a lot of good stuff out there, but I, I, I think that, you know, people have to have a resolve that they're going to make it work. And unfortunately, we live in a culture that that doesn't value hard work. Yeah. You know, we expect everything to be handed to us on a platter. And and if you believe everything the media puts out, then no wonder everything's screwed up because the media always gives a happy ending to stuff. They don't ever look at real issues, you know. So like when I did counseling for couples, I would look at the family system and I would say, okay, what happened in your family? And how was this carried throughout the generations in your family? Like incest, divorce, alcoholism, drug addiction, pornography, just to name a few, you know, how is that impacting, you know, you? And then on this side, your spouse, like, how did that impact? And if this is going to be an issue, how are you going to work on it? You know, uh, Jan Frank, Dan, uh, Jan and Don Frank, many years ago, wrote a book. Jan is a marriage counselor in, in uh, California. I don't know if she's still practicing because it was like 30 years ago. But she wrote a book called When Victims Marry. And the whole purpose of that book was um, she was an incest survivor. And when she got, you know, and her husband, she went, hey, he went through something. They were like, okay you know, counsel pastors don't deal with that stuff. So her as a therapist was trying to explain, okay, when victims marry, this is kind of what you have. Their follow-up book was called Unclaimed Baggage, you know, which talks about just what it sounds like, unclaimed baggage. It's like, okay, you, you bring all this crap with you into, you know, your marriage. Guess what? You're going to have to deal with it. Yeah. And somebody's, you know, you talk about sacrifice. I think for me, my husband and I, if if we sacrificed anything, it was money to go to good therapy. Mm. I mean, I'm actually working on my second book, which is all about my recovery and the long therapeutic process I went through to get healthy that I learned in therapy from my loving therapist. You know, I would not be the woman I am today without her in my life. Or the other couple of therapists I saw during that time too, you know, and I recorded my sessions. So I have, I can look back to 25 years ago and listen to my younger self and listen to what I was going through and go, oh my gosh, just as an example, 
the very first time my therapist told me she loved me, I didn't get that from a mother. Mm. So I told her and I, I told her, I, I had recently heard this tape and I was like, oh, I forgot all about that. But I told her, I said, you know what? The very first time you told me you love me, I felt like a part of my heart came back to life. Wow. And then after that, I went to the mall and I walked around for an hour. Mm. Now that was from a 21 year old. I'm 54 now. Yeah. You know, the sacrifice that my husband and I made to pay all that money in therapy was completely worth it. We don't have fancy schmancy stuff. I'm not your Christian celebrity or whatever that has perfect whatever. Not the, you mean to I, tell me you, you don't have gold-plated fixtures in your bathroom? have nothing like that. <laughs> <laughs> but you know what? I play pickleball. And, and you know, it's funny. I do a show. I encourage people. And, you know, I, I really do believe the word of God when it says, you know what? Lay up your treasures in heaven where, where moth and rust don't destroy. Mm -hmm. And I think that we will be surprised going back to that widow's might. Yeah. You know, sometimes I feel like I get, like, I, I will, I will tell you when I started my show, Bible News Radio, 17 years ago, I had just left the, uh, I had just graduated from college. I was finishing my internship. I finished all 3,000 hours of internship in California. And I was praying about whether or not to get licensed. And a whole bunch of stuff happened. And I had launched my show. Well, it came to a point where I was like, okay, Lord, I do not know. I don't, I don't know what to do. And so I thought, you know what? I'm going to pray and I'm going to ask God for what I consider to be the impossible thing. And that is an interview with Amy Grant. So I lived in California. Amy Grant lives here in Nashville, mm -hmm. right? Well, I, in 2005, there's nobody on the internet, really. So I Googled Amy Grant, publicist. I found her publicist, which was a miracle. <laughs> I reached out to her, said, hi, I have this show. Can I, I want Amy to come on it. And didn't hear anything for about six weeks. Finally, I remember sitting, I was sitting at my desk and I was going, okay, gosh, well, I guess maybe you want me to keep be a therapist. And then boom, this email comes through. And it says, Amy said yes to your interview. She, you, she'll give you 10 minutes on Monday. It's yours if you want it. Okay. Mm. I'm a no-name. I'm a no-name person. I had, I had no audience. They made me fill out all the paperwork, by the way. Like, how big is your audience? All that stuff. I was like, uh, zero, 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 zero. There's zero. Blah, 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 blah. <laughs> <laughs> but a few days later, my phone rang because back in the olden days, we just had regular phones. Yeah. <laughs> I answered it and Amy Grant was on the other side of it. Oh, wow. Giving me her very first podcast interview. Wow. And I was like nobody, you know? And yeah. so I, I look at that and I go, look, if, if the Lord, just like what Amy did with the, I can only imagine song, right. If, if the Lord can move on the heart of somebody like her, who she was a no-name at one point too. If you recall how she got started, she, she was in high school mm -hmm. and somebody found her and, and all that. Well, Amy's reward in heaven is great because I tell you what, people have come to Christ through my show for the last 17 years. We've, we've reached millions of people online, not putting any money into it really, because we don't get paid anything, mm -hmm. you know, but 
but that life being touched, you know, the fact yeah. that she was willing to take her time to be with somebody not like super famous <laughs> or whatever, a little no-name person like me. Um, when my podcast did take off, the first person, first thing most people ask is, well, who's been on your show? And I said, Amy Grant. And of course, everybody wanted to come on because Amy went on it. Yeah. Right. So yep. it's, well, you know. Yeah. Well, I will tell you that um, my early days at that Christian radio station, we were playing her music, um, Age to Age, El Shaddai, and so forth. And, um, yeah, we, we all wanted to uh, marry that woman. Uh, <laughs> she was gorgeous back then, even more so now. Uh, but she is uh, with, uh, with a gentleman she's very happy with, which is fantastic. But she put out some amazing music in those early days, in the early 80s, early mid 80s. Mm -hmm. um, and it was fun to play. And um, <clears throat> a matter of fact, I may even have one or two of those albums that I took with me from the radio station. Maybe. I don't know. Uh, anyway. <laughs> but well, Father's, were... Eyes, Father's Eyes was the first Father's one that I Eyes. heard. Yes. And, and I, was, I was in high school. I wasn't a Christian. A friend of mine gave me that. She led me to the Lord. And my mom wouldn't let me go to church for the first year or so of me being a Christian. And, mm. and Amy's music is what got me through that. There was that another the Christian one. club on high school campus. Yeah. Uh, yeah. It's, it, it's just amazing. I mean, there were so many different people back then that the musicians, the, the singers, seemed to have a greater sense of credibility than the evangelists in that day at that time. And actually, probably even today, for that matter. Um, but I just remember that they were the musicians, uh, the singers, uh, whether it was uh, John Fisher or Sandy Patty or, um, oh, Taylor was his last name. Steve Taylor, I think, was his name. Uh, he had a very unique sound. It was really fun to listen to him. Wants and, to be a clone. Uh-huh. I want to be a clone. Exactly. Uh, I'm trying to think of some of the others, but it was just amazing. I love Harris. Twyla Paris, yes, 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 yes. My yes. I remember too um, uh, that, uh, uh, and this was one of the things I'm going to ask you about too. John Fisher, who I had the privilege of interviewing several times back then. Wish I still had those tapes. Maybe they're in a corner of uh, of my closet somewhere on a cassette. But we were talking. He was. Uh, uh, we were conversing uh, over the phone uh, interview. <clears throat> although he was in England, I was there in Phoenix. Not England, New England, New England, New England. And um, he was telling me about an experience that he had just recently when he was sitting in his what I'll call his lonely writer's garret, as they say, looking out the window at the leaves falling from the trees. It was fall season. And he was thinking about where he came from, i.e. he grew up in the um, uh, um, oh, what did he refer to it as? Um, it was I think it was the 70s. Um, uh, I'm trying to remember the era that he referred to it as, but anyway, he grew up in California and, um, he's sitting there looking out the window there in, in, uh, New England. And he asks himself the question, which I thought was, this was something that always astounded me, but I, I took great uh, joy in knowing that, oh my gosh, there's hope for the world because people are thinking independently of what they're being told, not know what they've read, what they're being told. He says, 
Jesus movement, that was it, of the, of the 70s, 60s and 70s. And he says, the question I asked myself was, is what I believe, what I've been told to believe, or what I have chosen to believe? And there's a difference, a big difference, because this, the latter is more from experience. The former is from all the people around you that want you to go a particular direction. Um, I want to throw one other element in there, the phrase personal relationship with God. Mm -hmm. And I have had many ministers during that period come to me and say, I don't think you're saved, Richard. I, think, I don't think you're ready to meet God. And I'm just sitting here thinking, uh, what business is it of yours? It's a personal, you even said it, it's a personal relationship. And it's not a three-way. It's a two-way between me and God. What business is it of yours? Talk to us a little bit about your faith and your connection with God and that aspect of a personal one-on-one -on -one that nobody has any right to step in and judge you to, 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 to cast dispersions on your, your version of your faith that may not match up to theirs. <laughs> that's a, that's a, well, I'm trying to think how to answer that. So, so you, you have, um, well, you know, it's funny. You should you should bring that. You should say that. Okay. Um, because I think it's really easy to look at other people, like go to church. And um, like I was at church yesterday. And I'm not a big fan of church. Okay. I'm just not. I, I think that it's consumer Christianity. And I don't think the church as a whole does much to disciple people. And maybe that's just because my gift is is teaching and discipling and mentoring people. And I don't see a lot of that going on. Um, I think that there is a difference between justification, sanctification, and the end of our life, right? And I think where, where our personal relationship is bared out is in the sanctification process. Mm -hmm. That's what I write about in my book, Pickleball Faith, Inspiration on and Off the Court. I write, I, I, and people have told me when they when they read my book, they laugh and they cry sometimes because they could feel my thing. I've had more people tell me they laugh though, and I and I was like, why are you laughing at my pain here? I'm you know I'm telling you, you know stories I'm telling on myself, but they're laughing because they can identify with with the fact that they've had these thoughts too. And so I'm kind of like going. Okay, you. so when it comes to my personal relationship, I think part of the baggage of being raised in a Catholic background is that the Catholic Church, by and large, tries to tell you what to do, and, and they don't understand the whole personal relationship with God thing. My mom was a Catholic, mm -hmm. and my dad was, and I was, I was Catholic until they got divorced and got thrown out of the church, right? I mean, so that was, you know, hey— we love you so much. Get out, you know. <laughs> right. Here's the here's the left left foot of fellowship, but you know that put a bad taste in both my parents' mouth for a very long time. Um, 
Mm. For me, it did nothing because I was so little when it happened. Mm -hmm. But I always knew that there was God. I always knew there was God um, because, because I think the Lord blessed them blessing me as a baby, right? You know, dedicating me to him in the Catholic Church. Um, but my my personal relationship with God is funny because when I was 29 years old, I, I got really pissed off at God. Mm -hmm. I became a Christian when I was about 12. God delivered me out of a very serious circumstance that's really, you know, that was tied to my abuse. But I followed him and I fell in love with his word and just loved his word so much. But when I was 29, there was a lot going on. And I was so mad at God that I told him to send me to hell. That's how mad I was. Mm. And I was so mad at God that I told him that I hated him. And I hated his word. And I took the Bible and I ripped it up and I threw it on the ground. And I stomped on it and I threw it up in the air and just had a fit. Mm -hmm. And after that, I collapsed and I cried. Mm. And then on my 30th birthday, my husband gave me a new Bible. <laughs> and so I remember it was my I was when I was in my 29 because he gave me my new Bible when I was 30. I'm 54 now. I still have that Bible, which when I die, my therapist will get it if I'm not if I'm dead first. Hope she'll probably be dead first because she's older than me. But but I did tell her I would will her that Bible mm -hmm. because that was a very key turning point. You know, I think if you grow up without a dad, which is essentially what I did. Um, for me, it would, I had to get to a place where I, it, it was totally okay to be really who I am in my most utterly ugliness state ever to believe that God is really going to be there for me. Cause in the end, it's just going to be us anyway. And I think we, we fight it. We fight the deeper levels of trust that he takes us through because because we don't want to go there. I mean, hello, yeah, you know, yeah. and you mentioned Job earlier, right? Job is a wonderful book. It's one of my favorites. Actually, people hate Job, but I love Job because that whole premise of that book is we get a, we get a peek behind the scenes of what Satan's doing in the beginning. And, and God knows Job is going to pass the test. And he does, but his stupid ass friends, I don't know if I'm allowed to say it's all right. Ass, it's all right. We're fine. We're fine. <laughs> his stupid ass friends, you know, they come in and they start giving all these reasons why Job is going through this and none of them know anything. Yeah. Right. But in the end, God questions Job. Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Where were you? When? Where were you? Where were you? Where were you? And, you know, Job's like, I can't answer that, but. I fear you. And here we are, <laughs> you know, and, and, you know, of course, Job's wife, Job's wife gets a bad rap, I think, because she said, curse God and die. But I think people forget if you've ever been a wife with a sick husband, just saying, you know, plus she lost all her kids on top of it yeah. too. So she went through, you know, suffering too. Um, but again, it was, it was that, that working out. And I think honestly, part of, the problem people have also is that we don't look at the fact that we really do have an enemy in the devil. Unfortunately, we have a big part of the so-called church that likes to focus on the devil more than God. Yeah. And because of that, you have this skewed theology that's warped and wrong. And, you know, you get your eyes off God. So, you know, about three years ago, a friend of mine called me up and she said, you know, 
I'm going to be doing this Bible reading accountability group and I want you to come to it. And I said, you know, she's going to charge 50 bucks. And I'm like, no, I am not paying you 50 bucks to read the Bible with you. That's just not going to happen. Mm -hmm. So she, she's like, you can come for free. And I'm like, oh, cool. All right. I'll come for free. So what we did was we got on zoom 50 days in a row, 7am in the morning, checked in, bedhead, whatever, coffee in hand and said, <laughs> this is where I'm going to read in the Bible because her whole point was most Christians have never read the whole Bible. Mm -hmm. Right. And so we were accountable. So for 50 days, we did this, we met, we did this about two weeks into that. I gave her 50 bucks mm. because what the Lord showed me was, yeah, even though I do this, I'm in ministry, blah, blah, blah. Yours truly hadn't actually been in God's word like I used to be when I first was born again. Right. And he showed me, you know what, kid, there's a lot more in here that I could be showing you. And that group lasted six months. And then we paired off into other groups. And it was about a year into doing this thing that all of a sudden, one morning, um, I'm reading the Bible and I was in Revelation and I was reading, I think it was in chapter four where he was talking about the different creatures, right? The creatures that, that worshiped and stuff. And I'm reading that and I'm like, I heard this thought in my head, which was go check out the early chapters of Genesis. I'm going to tell you what this means. I said, okay. So I flipped back to Genesis and I noticed the creation of the cattle and the livestock and, you know, the, the various things. And it was like, God said to me, okay, look at that. Now look at here. People are always wondering what these figures, this four faced figure means. Mm -hmm. I'll tell you what it means. And he shows me, he literally, he showed me this. It was so cool. He's like, what this means is that, you know, the lion is the king of the beasts, right? The livestock is the king of the, the, the livestock. Mm -hmm. The man is the king of man. And, and the eagle is the king of the birds, right? Mm -hmm. If you read down through the rest of that chapter, then you'll see the song that this creature sings. It's all about worshiping creation and how creation was. And I was sitting there and I was like, now that is so cool that you actually showed me what this meant. So I, I went to a commentaries afterwards. I read all this baloney that they said this was supposed to mean. And then at the very bottom, I saw this footnote in one of them that said, well, there is this messianic rabbi that believes that the eagle is the king of the birds, that the livestock is the king of the, you know, the cow is the king of the thing. The lion is the basically what God just showed me. Mm -hmm. the messianic rabbi had yeah. the, you know, gave the meaning. So then I told my husband, who he knows everything about the Bible. There's nothing I can ever really tell him <laughs> that he doesn't already know. Um, and he was like, I've never seen that before. So for me, that that's my relationship with God. And I actually shared that with my therapist. And she's like, you know what? God loves to show you stuff. You know, mm -hmm. you've got a really cool relationship with him. Absolutely. And I'm like, yeah, he knows that that will excite you. And I'm like, yeah, it's totally going to excite me. Um, but, you know, it's not always easy. Yeah, Nothing worth fighting for is, though, right? A so of, A lot of times that's the case. Stacey Lynn Harp, my guest. The book is entitled Pickleball, Inspiration on and Off the Court. And this is Tell Me Your Story. I'm Richard Dugan, your host. And Tracy Lynn 
Harp, I thank you so much for giving us so much time here on the program. I have three final questions that I ask all of my guests. And here in the 15th year of this program, uh, we have changed them up a little bit. I've already asked a number of our guests these three questions. Two of them are the same. You don't obviously know what those are. But uh, be that as it may, I want to ask you those three questions. You may have answered them to some degree during the program, but I'd like to ask them directly. The first of those questions is, who is Stacy Lynn Harp? Who am I? Your worst nightmare. No. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry. I couldn't say that out loud. Um, who am I? Well, pretty much what you see is what you get. I mean, if you listen to this whole interview, this is pretty much me. You know? Mm -hmm. um, I'm real. What is your life's purpose? What is my life's purpose? My life's purpose is to annoy people. Um, <laughs> it, it seems to be that. That seems to be the case. Now, I mean, and I kind of say that in jest because it seems to be that's the case. But my life's purpose is really to encourage people to get to know the Lord. And the final question, I hope you get the reference. What was your best day? It was my best day. Hmm. Well, I would have to say that's a hard question to answer. That is a hard question. I've had a lot of good ones, but my best one? Hmm. I would probably say the day I met my husband. Okay. And again, I thank you so much. Uh, we've been talking for an hour and a half, and this has been fantastic. And I thank you for giving us so much time. Yeah, well, thank you. You are very welcome. And I thank you for listening to and watching. Tell me your story, New Paradigms for a New World. We're giving you choices and knowledge of those choices to help make your dreams come true. Until our next broadcast, podcast, videocast, love to Lal and Jeanette, I am listening. <laughs>